What magic is gathered from the old trees, from the spirits there, from the forest itself? The haunted pathways that lead into the dark forest have always been shrouded in mystery and fear, evoking a timeless curiosity. I remember as a child the way the woods behind our house called to me, they spoke to me. The trees had such presence, such personalities. Trees do mark the passage of time and memory. Guardians of forgotten homesteads, old apple trees gnarled and thick with lichen hold rainwater pools in hollows. Alder copses next to the cemetery fill with mist and are still during windy midnight hours. Lightning-struck oak trees transform spirit paths on twilight evenings of the full moon nearest solstice time. Under the Witching Tree by Corinne Boyer This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. So that wonderful music in the intro was provided by our friend Jess of Thonia in New Zealand. She's an artist and a musician, and she will be letting us play four other pieces of music throughout this episode. She is a big fan of today's podcast guest, and we wouldn't know about today's podcast guest without Thonia uh, recommending um, today's podcast guest's book, Under the Witching Tree. So our guest is Corinne Boyer. She's a folk herbalist, a teacher, and an author. She's written books uh, with the title of Under the Witching Tree. Um, some other ones are Under the Bramble Arch, Plants of the Devil, Dream Divination Plants, and The Witch's Cabinet. So that'll give you kind of a, the vibe of today. Now, if you want to learn more about Corinne, check out her website, Maple Mist Wood. If you live in the Washington area, you can uh, take part in one of her classes, one of her workshops, and you can find all the links on how to buy the books through her website. Links in the show notes. So we're going to be talking about spirits in the land, in the water, in the trees, ghosts, our ancestors, haunted forests, folklore from Europe and some in America, 
folk magic, folk medicine. So if you have enjoyed some of the paranormal episodes I've done around Halloween, but you might not be as interested in herbalism and and, uh, plants, well, I still think you're really, really going to like this one. And if you are really into herbalism, I think you're definitely going to like this one because this shows a little bit of a different side, which is the more malevolent side of the plants and the plant spirits. This one's a lot of fun. And Corinne tells two quite potent stories, one of which is about her um, coming in contact with one of the great forces in Mother Nature. And uh, she had an omen that perhaps saved her, saved her life. And her second story is about traveling to a haunted inn. Now, when it comes to the idea of uh, trees and plants having spirits in them or among them, that was something that I've come across a lot when I, in my early episodes when I would talk to my herbalist friends and acquaintances on the podcast. Um, I don't personally have too many experiences where I quite understand fully what, what a lot of my herbal friends mean when they mean me say these plant spirits and whatnot. But I love today's episode because just like with the paranormal episodes that I do, um, you know, the paranormal can be kind of like corny. If you, like the cryptid stuff can be a little bit corny. And so I really like when these topics are looked at through the lens of folklore. That certainly helps me be interested in these topics. And I always like when it's a little bit on the darker side. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who's been helping on Patreon. I wanted to quickly let you know um, where your money is going. Uh, recently, I bought a special uh, headphones and microphone that is small enough that I can mail to guests. Um, if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, you know that almost all of the podcasts were done in person up until recently. My main issue with doing episodes long distance is sound quality. I don't want you listening to some crap, um, you know, some crap audio on a cell phone. So uh, I bought some gear that I can mail to future guests. Um, today's was the first. So you'll hear that the quality is almost just as good as uh, my microphone quality here. So now that is going to really open up reaching out to more people across the U.S., um, it's going to be difficult if I want to talk to people in Europe because it might cost an absolute fortune to send the microphone over there. But uh, anyways, problem solved there. Thank you for um, helping fund this project. And let me say thank you to everyone at the highest tier. Jess Paget, Kendall Wine, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw of Topsy Farms, On Stanley, Diana Gonzalez, Earl Suter, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, uh, Jeffrey McLaughlin, Kenneth Giles, Leslie Peterson Cohen, Michelle Alderson, Nathan Griffin, Ryan Arnold, Rambler, Ryan Gweckner, Sophie McVicker, Steve Childs, uh, Tristan Harper, Tyler Lively, the wonderful Waterlight, and the working class woodsman, and everyone at the lower tiers. Thank you so much. Um, your Patreon patronage is really, really helping a lot. Um, so that is uh, patreon.com forward slash our numinous nature links in the show notes. Thank you so much. 
For today's reading of the podcast, I'm going to read a poem by Corinne in her book, Under the Witching Tree. And it reminds me of a handful of themes that have come up on the podcast over the past year. Um, One of those is uh, in the Celtic episode talking about the old pagan god Cernunos, who very little is known about, but he is the stag-headed god that has been depicted on the likes of ancient Celtic cauldrons from 2,000 plus years ago. Um, You see him sitting cross-legged. It's a man uh, with a head of antlers, and he is surrounded by the wild beasts of nature. Very, very cool and uh, very potent deity imagery. And another uh, topic that comes up before reading this is when I did my episode down in North Carolina with uh, Sonny Ledford, the Cherokee cultural ambassador. One of the stories he told was a fascinating uh, story that I guess today we would call a cryptid story, but uh, he talked about some kind of uh, gathering that was happening in the community where they were doing songs and whatnot. And some of the women there noticed um, a mysterious woman who was on the outskirts of the ceremony, the, the dancing and song. And they noticed that she had the feet of a deer. And Sonny says that in in his community down there, they believe in uh, someone called the Deer Woman. And uh, so that, so let's get into this reading now. Melody from a distant realm, the tapping of the bones, the rattle of the black hooves, singing of waters and blood as the great stag has fallen. Near the summer stream, a golden light arises, fern and maroon flesh. The wood ears are listening to the white deer foraging in the mist. The medicine of the oak brings together root and antler, twisted into amber rope, and where the green stones arise from the mouths of glittering caves. A wizened deer woman greets me at the enchanted hour of twilight. Tiny bottles of clear water and of dark deer blood, these gifts are etched upon my heart, and with the emerald scapula, I will see the future. The grove of foxglove circles and softly illuminates nests made of white feather down, and softest deerskins, nourishment for dreams unearthed. Graceful dancer, you have fed my family and clothed my babe. You have become mist and spirit, instantly a forest ghost. Not doomed to prance in the mead behind split rails or cedar, but crowned as birthing mother. With robes of smooth crimson and black-stained wine, a ring of silver flames, dear woman, at the creek, I bow my head to drink. I'm located in the Pacific Northwest, um, near the state capital in that area. So this is um, a really, 
really gorgeous area that's known for its rainy, um, rainy days and um, greenery because everything stays green all year. Not everything, but the mosses, the lichens, the ferns, the the evergreen plants and the conifers are green all year. So it feels like an evergreen state. That's why it's called that. When I first moved here, uh, it was January and I came from Michigan. So I was amazed how green things were. And, and just, it was so enchanting in the winter to not just see gray and brown. So we are in, you know, early spring. So things are just starting to open up in the forest, but really the dominating landscape is still with the moss, the lichens, the evergreen plants and the conifers and the ferns everywhere. Because really the, where I'm at is a little colder than the Olympia area. So not everything is kind of leafed out at all. So we're just in the very beginning of that. So it is a rainy, drizzly day. What a landscape. Now, th- are you in Washington? Yeah, Washington okay. State. I've been to Oregon and I've been in Northern California. So I've got a taste. Mm-hmm. I've got right. a taste for what you mean. And the lusciousness of the green is quite, quite enchanted. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. And I'm only a few hours from the whole rainforest. So it's very, uh, it, it's even more um, lush up here than it is in Oregon and more, basically more wet from the weather. So it's, it's really remarkable climate. There's nothing really like it Incredible. in the United States. So yeah, it's a really special Incredible. place. Um, having just, I moved from uh, like the mountains of Virginia to Appalachia now, we're in West Virginia and being oh, able cool. to see that we get a taste of what you're talking about. The In the winter, there is still a lot of moss, a lot of lichen. Oh, cool. um, mm-hmm. There are hemlock trees and, and so those you know, evergreen. And then the, right. we have the white pines and the rhododendron. Nice. So the winter is still incre- like stupefyingly beautiful, just yeah. as much so. Totally. It's like, a, it's incredible too, because all the leaves are gone. So you really see the forest more in the winter here with the, you know, actually the darkest time in some ways is the summer because the leaves are full all over the trees. And so it, it really darkens the forest. So I actually love a winter forest out here because you can see better. It's not as much underbrush uh, because all the, the little leaves are gone too. Yes. And we're going to get all into your books of plant folklore and tree lore. But uh, I know in your book, Under the Witching Tree, you talk about the pine. And I is it in your winter section? Let me see. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, yes, as part of the altar of winter charms, the pine tree, and for sure, just uh, from having moved here, for sure the pines stand out pretty much really only in winter. It's like it, once everything's leafed in, you, right. I don't even really notice the pine trees anymore. Exactly. It's like that with the Douglas fir and the western red cedar and the western hemlock and some of the spruce out here. We have some pine. We're not we don't, um, you know, you guys have the eastern white pine. We have a western white pine, but unfortunately it suffered some sort of blister rust, uh, blight thing that happened in the uh, 50s and 40s. So we are mm. left with not very many, but we have a shore pine, uh, native shore pine. But so there's some definitely some pines and people grow pines as ornamentals. So they're definitely around. But mm. yeah, the where, the white pine where you are is spectacular for cough syrups and um, winter medicines. The taste is unparalleled. Well, in preparation with speaking with you, I went out and I collected some uh, white pine needles and made a little tea for oh, our nice. conversation. Sorry, oh, I, nice. Sorry, I can't extend it out to you all yeah. these many miles away. 
Sounds um, delightful. Yeah. So let's get into all of your work with um, folklore, plant lore, uh, and I thought I thought a really cool way to start the conversation about your work and your books would be with a quote from the introduction of Under the Witching Tree, because this is a theme that I personally have been very interested in. Um, I am, uh, I've been in like Jungian dream analysis for like 10 years now. So I'm, I very much kind of look at the world very much through a Jungian lens, especially storytelling, fairy tales, mythology. And, um, and, on that note, I just had a recent episode with a Celtic scholar, and I said to him that I'm so thankful that uh, he translates these old texts into modern English, and I just said thank you to him for, um, he really translates it, translates it, translates it as it is, with, and it's very mm. dark. So when his version of the Greek myths are insanely violent, very sexual, and I just felt like I told him when I grew up, I didn't get any of this part in, in the mythology. So uh, as someone who likes Jung, I, I love the shadow, the dark side in all of us, the mm. dark side in storytelling and literature, et cetera. And the dark side is incredibly, incredibly important. And so I want to read this uh, few sentences from your intro and then have you kind of expand on it because I feel very much the same way. The powers that trees hold are not only healing, protective and whimsical, but also fierce, frightening, deadly, and elusive. The new age tendency to sugarcoat and whitewash traditions has certainly been veneered onto the realms of the plant world. Folklore graciously sheds light into the darker corners of these ways. So, hell yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you mean by that? I mean, I feel like I kind of have the feeling, but let me hear yeah. what made you inspired to kind of show the darker side of plant lore? Yeah. So it's a great question and it's, it's a huge part of my work really. Um, I think that the motivation behind it has been um, that there's so little available in terms of bringing that lore into the light and focusing on it, trying to understand it. Uh, you know, when you, what we were all exposed to in, you know, I guess the 80s and 90s, at least I can speak for myself, in terms of the the mainstream that was the alternative <laughs> mainstream, uh, you know, they just don't do the plants justice, the books and the works from those time periods, not the ones that were widely available. There was incredible books that aren't available, weren't available that do the plants justice. So I guess I felt like once I, once I stumbled upon the genre of folklorists um, and people who were studying the plants by collecting transmissions, uh, oral transmissions, firsthand transmissions, and also looking into the old lore, like doing the digging and pulling that stuff up and actually seeing that, wow, plants have such a more complex history, so much more interesting than what I had ever imagined. I mean, I've been studying plants with, um, as a, as like, uh, you know, my primary, um, you know, occupation and just pat with, with total full passion since I was 19, you know, making the decision, this is my path kind of a thing. And it was so hard to find that lore to begin with. So I felt like as I started getting deeper and deeper into the older lore, mostly 
reading folks that were dead, you know, the folklore they had passed on, uh, the, the, into the older lore, the farther into the older lore I got away from the more available, um, modern lore, you know, and what was being circulated, I just found it so much more interesting and it made so much more sense in terms of why we feel how we feel when we're around, you know, a haunted old gnarly tree, for example. Mm. And when we're in a dark forest and when we're, when we see like a strange flower that just kind of glows at twilight and we feel like, what the hell? There's some sort of power there, but I don't know what it is. And nobody ever taught me, but I know it's there. So it's mm. kind of, you know, it's a testament to feeling, uh, these experiences with plants and spirits surrounding plants that is just not really, uh, uh, I think it's just not considered as important as kind of what you find in general, which is just things that are constantly the same stuff kind of repeated and, and also just focusing on this benevolent healing mm. side, which, you know, that's part of it too. There's no doubt. Um, but there's just so much more than that. So I guess that's been my my goal, you know, as I've slowly kind of we all have a path to walk and we don't know where the path is going to lead us. And we have to hand cut, cut the path out of the forest ourselves. You know, everybody that is walking this strange path of working with super, the supernatural, it, it's not like we're given a path that says go from A to B to C and then you're done. It's like, no, you have to like, you have to carve your path. So as this path is being carved by not just me, but this, you know, the spirits around me and the weird dreams and the people in my life and these things, all the influences slowly, you know, I feel like it's become more clear to me that my goal of understanding the, the interface between people and supernatural power um, of plants and other kinds of spirits is really what I'm most interested in. Well, I just love hearing that stuff. I mean, I, I I've made a joke many times on this podcast that I'm that I'm like a closeted goth because when it comes <laughs> when it comes to the arts or literature or cinema or you know any anything regarding story or aesthetics, mm. I always kind of like the little bit of the darker side of things. So um, that is awesome to hear. So um, I guess, so were you, I guess, were you having your own intuitions um, and then you had to find folklore to kind of help you say what, I guess you were kind of saying it there, mm -hmm. you see a certain flower in the twilight and you have a feeling or an intuition and then you sought folklore to kind of help you understand what you were feeling or having visions of or experiencing? Well, um, kind of, kind of indirectly. I mean, I feel like as a kid, um, growing up in the woods in Michigan and running around outside a lot and having just different, different places that I would feel something. And there was really no, yeah, there's no context for it. Nobody was, except for, I mean, of course, reading fairy tales when you're in watching, you know, Disney movies and whatnot. Um, but there was no real context for it. I didn't, it's not like I had a, a grandmother who said, oh, here's how it is, honey. But I, so I didn't, mm. but I feel like it, it was more like folklore found me. And when it found me, it was just a huge epiphany. And it was like, oh my gosh, these things I've been sensing and feeling for so long, I finally feel validated. And also there's so much more that I, than I ever imagined. And that's what all of those fairy tales and those, you know, the oral stories and the, and ballads and songs and things are, are based on and the, and the superstitions surrounding them. So I think that 
it is really confirming to have experiences and then, you know, 20 years later or something be like, oh, that's what, that's what this was, you know? So we, when we have powerful experiences as children and, and teenage years, you know, when we're kind of just fumbling around and then we, those experiences end as young adults and as adults, all of our powerful experiences that are almost always unexpected, they stick with us and they continue to affect us. You know, the same power can be drawn upon even, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, whatever. It's still that potent. So I think that folklore helps make sense of a lot of things that I couldn't, yeah, I definitely couldn't articulate and didn't have any kind of support around in terms of somebody to explain it to me in a traditional manner. You know, I had to find all of that along the way. Mm. So I would like to hear some of those personal experiences, if you don't mind telling them. Maybe I'll tell you one of mine first to kind of make you sure. feel like I kind of have something going on too. I mean, I've had <laughs> met many, many weird experiences, but one that I feel like you could be very helpful in articulating is... Um, I recently just did a podcast with a uh, former musher and a houndsman. He's in Norway. And it was cool because uh, I think most people would think that someone who's an outdoorsman uh, not necessarily would be as open to kind of the more bizarre or the numinous or the paranormal or something like that. But I said to him, you know, since moving to Appalachia, there's a feeling when I go to certain areas, that feeling did not exist back in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I really tried to, since saying that to him, I tried to really be more observant when I walk around. And when I walk around in those spots that have the feeling, it's mm -hmm. down on the creeks. It's down under the hemlock and white pine and mm -hmm. the rhododendron. That's where I feel it. And when I said that um, to this guy, this musher, he said, yeah, there are places in Norway, and it's not everywhere, where I'll be out hunting with his hounds and a fog will roll in and he'll see kind of shadows moving that he says, probably animals, you'll hear strange sounds. And he says, you would not be surprised at all if a troll walked by. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so when, you know, me and him, not so versed, not so well versed in, in these kind of spiritual or occult ideas or um, these old folkloric beings and stuff like that like what like does that evoke any of your own experiences like what are we feeling is it is it the land is it ghosts is it like, what is it like what are people experiencing when you just get a feeling in a landscape yeah so it's a great question and it's something i spend a lot of time uh working with my students in some of my programs particularly the folk magic and um, enchanted forest and hedgerow programs i i we spend days um in the year you know talking about exactly these things so the way that i think about it is when you when you go to any piece of land or a place i mean it doesn't have to be land it can be a it can be a shopping mall it can be an old house it can be a new house it can be a waterway it can be a graveyard it can be an old hotel railroads whatever right we have an opportunity to sense something there and of course um the generalization that i think a lot of people like to make is oh yeah um, you know, this is where um, spirits of the dead are, this is where supernatural spirits are, or, you know, it's easy just to group spirits into categories. And um, it's helpful to do that at first when we're learning to discern. But I think that approaching each place with, like, with kind of, 
yeah, being specific with each place in terms of being open and being like, what is this? That's, that's where we come into, it's like navigating a map. Um, and that just comes from being able to discern what we're feeling. So that comes with time and, and practice and also an understanding of what's what's out there and having different reference points for what's out there, which means when you've felt what a spirit of the dead feels like, you develop a kind of a reference point or a frame of reference. So then when you feel that again, you're like, oh, I know what that is. Mm. Just like just like when you feel a really dangerous uh, land spirit, which could, you know, if we're trying to articulate what that is, sure, we could look at the local lore. For example, I live on the lands where um, the Salish-speaking people lived and live. And so looking at, okay, so if I feel something really uncanny in the woods right next to my house, which I sometimes do, you know, I need to be thinking about what what were the people of this place? What did they believe in? Because those mm. are the spirits that are here. Uh, and also, there's going to be parallels with my northern Western European ancestors. So that's always interesting to be like, okay, you know, there's like basket woman and the Sasquatch and the stick people. How did mm. they relate to the European lore of my ancestors? So I can make a link so I can have some understanding because really um, these beings have different names and different qualities to some degree. And then, but there's also ways to feel like, okay, I can navigate this once we realize, yeah, supernatural spirits are often more dangerous than spirits of the dead. And it makes sense because spirits of the dead were human once. Supernatural spirits don't play by the same rules. They don't have the same kind of, um, you know, they're not the same. So they're more dangerous. And that's always been true in tales of old. Of course, there's some dangerous spirits of the dead too. But it's it's interesting to feel like, okay, standing next to the stump here, where, uh, you know, you're getting some sort of visions and paying attention to what those visions are and not just dismissing it and saying, oh, that's nothing. Oh, I'm going to, you know, I don't know what that means. It's like, yeah, was was somebody murdered in this spot? And there's actually a ghost of the the human dead here. Is there a waterway nearby? And we, we know that um, from all the lore that water spirits were some of the most dangerous types of nature spirits to humans. When you say you feel things down by the stream, that's no surprise to me. There's probably something there. And... Um, dangerous because, you know, most of the lore says these beings want to want to drown humans, seduce them and drown them. That's often the case. I mean, you know, the man in, from Norway knows about the Neckin. He has another name for it there. Like they don't, they have, a, you know, different names all over Sweden and Norway and Denmark for the Neckin, which is a really, really old spirit that has a lot of the same attributes as the devil, actually. But he guards the water places and uh, he's an, it's really cool. So he, he, especially these dark lakes that are still, in the middle of the forest. So so it's kind of like looking into the local landscape and trying to see what what did the people who lived on the land for thousands and thousands of years believe. That's hugely important. You know, we can't just, you know, <laughs> trans transplant mythologies because that's, you know, I mean we have to actually pay attention to where we are, but then mm-hmm. also and also being like open to a new experience of, you know, like you said, you don't feel that intensity everywhere. It's not like it's just everywhere. You know, we can't just say, oh, there's, you know, and it's not, it's not like, oh, there's one land spirit here. No, there's so many. The landscape is just like, just like it is with animals and plants. It's going to be kind of similar with spirits. Different spirits are drawn to different trees and plants, you know, and then there's like, yeah, spirits of the dead everywhere. And if we can, if we're perceptive enough to pick up on different kinds of uh, spirits, then we'll be able to navigate that better and understand how to interact with them if we even want to do that. 
uh, and for what reason. So I guess it's I guess it's looking at it like it's a complex um, terrain. It's its own micro, you know, climate in a sense, in its own way, and that every place should be treated as as you know a new place and not just saying oh because this part of the creek feels this way it's going to feel that way no it's going to be different down the road like down the road from here there's a valley where i live and there's an old farmstead and it's the original homestead on the road where i live it's a dead end road and it's very different down there than it is up here the place i live never has had human inhabitants before it was never lived upon there was no house here no electricity and it was just used for hunting grounds and um you know it's been logged on and off. And in, in terms of tribal activity, the tribes have come through here for, you know, hunting and gathering, but nobody lived, there's no permanent settlement right here, but you can feel down in the valley, right down the road, there's native dead, there is some, uh, like pioneer dead for sure. Um, and, and then there's also the different spirits of place that are, you know, unfortunately because of one thing that really, um, is interesting to think about is how much the land has been able to be changed in the past hundred and you know twenty years because of high powered mm -hmm. engines and heavy machinery. Well, I guess hundred years. I mean, the the exponential rate of destruction on the land has increased so much in the last hundred years because of heavy machinery and and um, you know oil and petroleum based engines. You know with with saws and felling trees and dynamite and exploding, all of the stuff that has caused great change more and more so in the last, I mean, 150 years really has made a big impact, I think, on the spirits of place. So just to say, things have changed. Well, I mean, you brought up like 10 amazing things to talk about. <laughs> um, I guess I'll try to do them one at a time. Well, one, you mentioned just feeling spirits along waterways. I've done a handful of podcasts with paranormal investigators um, probably like four. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think probably all of them talk about how there's a lot of ghost activity or par paranormal activity around water, whether it's wells, whether it's, uh, lakes or, you know, streams. And it, what's interesting is having recently gotten into Celtic, um, history and, uh, mythology and whatnot, springs are very sacred to the Celts. Um, right. are you, is there anything you could further articulate on why water seems to be these otherworldly places? Yeah. Um, there's, there's a couple things to think about. I mean, one is number, the first thing is humans are drawn to water just for survival purposes, right? So it makes sense that on the landscape, that the sources of fresh water that were able to be drank without getting sick and, you know, that weren't going to run dry, would have been basically worshipped because they're so life-giving, right? And that some of them had supernatural qualities ascribed to them, like these holy wells, which are just, they're springs. You know, in America, when we say wells, we think of like a hand-dug well or something, but actually they're natural springs, like you mm. said. And um, the spirits there, like it was, you know, it was believed that spirits were there could be either cursed springs or <laughs> healing springs. So it's kind of interesting mm. that there's not only for just like kind of your basic needs, but also there's these aspects of water that have this history with them. When when we 
when we have a water place, and I grew up um, on the Great Lake, uh, Great Lake, Michigan, and around lots of lakes, and I'm a lake person and a creek person. So the ocean scares me because <laughs> I was never really around the ocean. So I'm like mm. not an ocean person. But different places have their lore and history. And just like I say this with the plants, the plants have, they carry with them like thousands of years of empirical evidence of use, history, you know, like what humans were doing with them can be sensed and felt around a plant. It's the same thing with the watery place. So the history of a place uh, can be sensed and felt. So that's one of the things that it's gravitated humans towards, you know, for these purposes. And we can feel that. That's one thing. Number two, um, it's it's also, they're dangerous, right? So that is, it does make sense. There's more human dead around these places because of drowning and, you know, you know, possible murder, suicide situations, you know, it's a danger, right? Water is not only life-giving, it's extremely dangerous for humans in different ways. So there's that. And then the fact that water is like a portal, it goes down a lot of times, you know, before we had um, the ability to find out what was down there, we had no idea. So it represents, mm, you know, this mysterious, totally, right? Where it's just like, okay, we, we can only go so far, um, and now we know a lot more in the last hundred years or whatever, but it's really not, that's not that long ago, you know, that we've Cer been able to find out more. Certainly through my Jungian understanding, a Jungian analyst would see, uh, dreams of enormous water or of swimming or of flood or of drowning all as kind of symbols of the unconscious, which I, to me is just really another way of talking about, um, just these incredible mysteries. Right. Uh, um, it was so fascinating. The first time you mentioned these spirits that want to drown people is so kind of bizarre. Like 15 seconds before you said that, uh, what popped in my head was on, on the last podcast, I was talking with a main trapper and we talked about this incredible TV show called the last Alaskans, where it documents the life of these Alaskan families, these trappers. Mm. And, um, there's just incredible. And, uh, there's a, couple, Haimo and Edna Korth. And Edna is a native Yupik from, I guess, St. Lawrence Island. But uh, fascinating, they raised kids in this extreme remote area. And their first child, I believe it was a daughter, they were on their canoe, you know, in the middle of nowhere, Alaska, hundreds and hundreds of miles from civilization. And their canoe tipped and their first daughter was swept away by the river. And you know, they called in helicopters and all sorts of stuff like that, and the body was never found. So it's mm. bizarre for that to have popped in my head like mm. 10 seconds before you mentioned this spirit that wants to drown people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. To me, it's almost shocking that there would be elements to nature that would want to harm us. I mean, that is almost like, what? I mean, I get what you mean, you know, don't, poke a grizzly bear, you know, don't go swimming in a thunderstorm. You know, uh, there's some kind of material, it, there's a lot of logical sense with a lot of that. Don't tempt, you know, especially with these people in Alaska, these trappers, they do not mess with mother nature, especially like traveling over ice and stuff like that. Um, cause that might break and you're completely done for, but it's just kind of fascinating to think why, I mean, I don't even know if that's a question, but like, why would there be spirits in nature that, don't like us or want to harm us. Like that's kind of crazy for me to think about. Mm. Well, we have to consider it's because they want to sacrifice. Of course they want <laughs> blood and meat. I mean, that is <laughs> like exactly old, why old. Yeah. So the, they want the old pagan ceremonies. 
Yeah, what the has Celtic- changed? Nothing. Nothing has changed for them. It's only mm. changed for us, right? Of course, mm. that's why that happens. It is. Mm. Oh, so they take the so the yeah. spirit in the water takes the child. Yeah. They want it. Why yeah. do they want it? It's a sacrifice. It gives them more power. When you give offerings to spirits, if it's, you know, uh, you're cooking Halloween, Hallow's Eve feast for your ancestors, why do you give offerings to them? Well, and what does it do? You're asking for them to protect your home and your farm, so you give them food to give them enough power to do that thing. And spirits need offerings. They need sacrifices. Yeah. For it, regardless, I mean, and spirits that have gotten sacrifices for a long time, when they've been forgotten about, they still want their sacrifices, so they're just going to take them. I mean, that makes total sense to me. That's kind of incredible. I didn't, mm-hmm. I had no idea what you would say to that. Um, <laughs> so, so on that note, so it's you know, I don't know, eighty percent of people today. I don't know. I'm just making up that yeah. number. But the modern, just the modern person, right? The modern hiker, yeah, um, who sees nature, it's incredibly beautiful, it's peaceful for the most part because you go only go hiking on the nice sunny days. Um, I mean, the, the thought, the thought that if you're unconscious or unaware of or completely disbelieve, this is complete nonsense what we're talking about today, say that that's how you see the world. Are, you, are these spirits still interacting with the people that don't believe in it? Of course. <laughs> on some level, it doesn't mean the person has to be perceptive, but when the person uh, disappears on the hike and nobody ever sees mm. them again, I mean, you know, it, is it a cougar? Is it a human? Those are the first two questions to ask, um, you know, because that's more likely on some level um, that we have whatever, but we have to, but also we don't know the potential, I mean, for spirits to to take a human regardless, you know, of what Mm. we think or believe. It doesn't matter if that person believes in them or not. You know, why do certain areas have accident after accident after accident? Mm. You know, why do certain um, parts of the sea have shipwreck after shipwreck? You know, these unlucky places, it's for a reason. There's there's something there that wants blood and meat. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So nature's dangerous as hell. It's not a, it's not a nice place. So all of the old tales tell that. Mm. So we just we're just not surrounded by that. We just think it's a Disney movie, and, right. a, and we're we're taught by Hollywood. You know that's how modern Americans uh, are taught. We're taught by Hollywood, but Hollywood um, has some correct folklore. It's just emphasized in the wrong places. But that's how we learn about the supernatural. So we have a, a skewed version of the supernatural, and then we stop watching our our movies and think, oh yeah, that's not true anyway. But it, but a lot of it is. So that's the thing. We don't really have the understanding um, because we don't have the same tales being told to us by grandma and grandpa um, to see like, yeah, nature was thought of as dangerous. It wasn't, it's it's never, never been benevolent. I mean, aspects of it are, but as a whole, I mean, it's when you look at traditional societies and how people lived, there is constant, constant, um, like in any culture, you're just going to find apotropaic charms and protections all over the place in terms of folk magic to protect against different supernatural forces and evil forces when traveling through a wood, when Mm. harvesting the corn, when going down to the well, you know, uh, we do all, that's why all of these folk ceremonies are done throughout the year. They're not, they're not um, part of witchcraft per se. They're just part of traditional living where people were doing these things to placate the spirits around them. So in order to have another fruitful year, you know, so all it seems there's so much link to protection and um, 
understanding of, you know, that, that, that invisible world, which I like to call in my classes, I say, it's the enchanted world. We've lost our enchanted worldview, mm. right? So that's really where it all comes from. But enchanted uh, is frightening. It's not like a romanticized version. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I am very susceptible to uh, getting scared easily, superstition. So yeah, there's definitely, I mean, I'm out in the woods by myself all the time, but certainly... Certainly there are, you know, I get many feelings. There's just very uncanny things all the time. I mean, certainly yeah. one thing with hunting is hunters are either uh, in the woods as darkness is uh, approaching or they enter the woods in darkness as the light approaches. And I have found the two have a completely different feeling. Like I have no yeah. problem entering the dark woods and seeing the day arrive. It's an incredible feeling. But no matter what, every single time when I'm in the woods and darkness is approaching, it's always unnerving. It's always yeah. unnerving as twilight comes. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a scary time. You should follow your instincts. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you have any personal experiences or, um, or examples from folklore where we have uh, a very clear um, example of, I guess, nature saying that like what we were just talking about kind of saying like telling you this is a stay back like this is a something like that like this isn't yeah an evil spot i mean evil is such a hard mm. word but just this is a this is a spot that's dangerous do, do you have any examples from folklore from your own experiences yeah yeah definitely um there's something that that I uh, experienced that it was just completely out of the blue where I went to visit some family actually down in Oregon. I won't say the area, but, um, and it was, I'd never been there before and, you know, we're driving and it's so gorgeous, you know, it's like starting to get dark. It was in November at the end of November. So, you know, a beautiful time of the year and, um, getting dark kind of early and we drove in the dark for a while to get to this place. It's way out in the middle of nowhere. And, I couldn't see, right, because we, you know, not much beyond what the car lights can illuminate going down, um, you know, unlit roads and down a long driveway to our family's place. And it was like I, I, I felt like I got out of the car, you know, I think it was like 10 at night when we finally got there and, and um, my daughter was just really little, so we had to all go to bed and we were tired and stuff. So uh, I could feel the land and I was like, Oh my God, I felt such hostility immediately, even though I, I was not expecting that. So I thought, okay, this is just whatever. I just kind of shook it off and I could not sleep all night. Uh, I felt the land. I felt like just this hostility that I can't describe. Like it was so intense. And I was like, what the hell? I had insomnia. I, when we got up in the morning, you know, this place is like breathtakingly beautiful. And so we went outside, we went around and I just thought, man, this place is pissed and I could feel it. And it was, um, and I later, I found out a little bit later and we approached it. It had been a quarry. It had been mined, uh, parts of the land, you know, and I really learned from that experience. I mean, you know, that places that have a, a rock quarry or have been mined are really hostile. And it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. You know, things are taken. There's no, it's just taken at such a crazy rate. Like, of course, my family hadn't done this. They were, they were going, they were um, giving love back to the land. And I think that they, 
you know, they did a lot for it when they, you know, they're whatever, they totally were trying to remediate it and just let it be a preserve and just totally take care of it. So I'm sure that they had their own relationship with that experience because uh, they've lived there for a long time. But for me, going in there just as like the first time, like how I couldn't believe how intense that experience was, you know, and I, and I just I wanted to go home. So once we only stayed like one or two nights, I think, or maybe just, I think two nights total. And then, and I just, I was like, this is beautiful, but I, I just, it doesn't feel like, like home, you know, I couldn't describe it. So that was really intense, just a really remarkable moment of, of getting that reference point. And, and there've been other places where, yeah, you can tell uh, now that I, after I had that experience where I go to a place that has a rock quarry nearby or like, you know, it's yeah, it's just feel, you just feel that. So that's a, a good idea if you want to go feel something kind of kind of drastic in terms of it's not even danger, it's more hostility, but you go to a rock quarry, go feel it. Go sit and do some sensing in a rock quarry or a place that's been mined or caves that have been mined. It's fucking creepy. So well, yeah, it really is. Well, that's very illustrative. So thank you for that example. Now that see that that is really Man, that just opens up so much thought-provoking conversation. I mean, for one, I think today's Thursday, Saturday. So in a few days, the podcast after yours is going to be with a guy I met out here. He's a West Virginian, and he is a coal miner. And oh, cool. I thought it would be incredible. I've personally never heard an hour and a half long podcast with a coal miner. That'd be so, awesome. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very so cool. He, He's he's very very Christian. His father's a preacher. He wow. knows he's helped with some preaching. He's a trapper and an outdoorsman. He's missing three fingers. Wow. Uh, yeah. And really interesting. Some, <laughs> so I'm excited to talk to him. Now here's what I wonder: Do you think that uh, you know with you on this conversation, I'm going with that everything that you say is true because that's just going to be helpful for the conversation. If and what I mean by that is some of this stuff might be pushing my own, um, might be kind of pushing me. Uh, with some of the the more out there system. ideas, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know any. I don't really know what I believe about anything. But I certainly have had very strong feelings. I've definitely had super intense ghost experiences. Uh, you know, I'm very aware of my dreams. So I'm I'm very open to this stuff. But for the sake of the conversation, I'm just going to go with anything you say. So so there are these spirits that are angry in certain landscapes. Um, what I'm wondering is, do you think that the these spirits on the land? Do you think they are able to know if someone is conscious of what they're doing, if they have bad intent or not. Like, would a would the guy who's the minor, he's not right. n- the bad guy. You know, right, he's right. he's doing the the he's doing the best job right. in the place he lives to support a family. And oh, yeah. you know, the guy I'm gonna be talking to, he has like a hundred acres. You know, he's obviously mm-hmm. stewarding a chunk of land. So it's like, do you think that the spirits can tell this is guy just doing his job versus here's a company that doesn't give a fuck about a landscape and is going to, you know, exploit it and burn it and timber it to the ground for profit. You know, I don't know. That's just kind of a wild <clears throat> idea. Um, no, I don't think that, that there's like some sort of ability to read into the, to the person. Mm. I think it's, I think it's about the interaction. I think it's about mm. the interface. Right. So that means this, this guy that has a hundred acres, he's, probably really peaceful and he probably talks to the birds and he probably leaves bread out for the, you know, I mean, you know, it's like the crows. And I mean, he probably has a sense of gentleness about what he's doing and Mm -hmm. right. Versus somebody who actually comes in with, you know, heavy equipment and is just completely disrespectful. Uh, You know, uh, that's, I mean, the point of contact is 
the knowledge that's relayed, I think. It's like what people are doing on the land, how they're operating on the land. It's I don't think it's like spirits can tell if someone's got good intentions or bad intentions necessarily. Mm. I don't now, know. Now, how does one properly honor them? So say for me, say I hunt or trap mm -hmm. or forage, like, um, you know, with each of these experiences, there is often a feeling of right or wrong and stuff like that. But how... I guess if these spirits want something in return, what do they want? Do they want just you to respect what you're doing or do they want you? I've had an herbalist uh, who is, I think, uh, maybe she had some, uh, I can't remember which uh, nation or tribe she has some blood of, but uh, mm -hmm. she mentioned perhaps to pluck some of the hairs on my arm to feel that pinch of pain and throw the hairs to the woods before I take an animal's life as a kind of exchange. Like what? How can one how can one who's not well versed in all this stuff mm. just kind of hedge their bets a little bit and enter the woods where you plan to take something? I need some firewood. Mm. I'm going to trap a few animals and, you know, pre preserve their furs, maybe eat some of them. I'm going to kill a deer for food. How do we interact? How does someone who's kind of open to this but not well versed in it interact with the land? Well, I think it's a great question. And the one, the first, there's kind of, there's two ways to look at it. The first one is there's no easy answer. So that means there's not a one size fits all here. Mm. You give this every time and this is fine because that's what um, the alternative culture we're in wants to do. It wants to say, do this for everything, make this offering for all these types of spirits and you're fine. That's what, you know, it's, mm. and it's not true because we have to, we have to give each place its own care and, consideration. So I think like that, a person. Exactly. So your experience hunting one deer versus another in two different places are going to be totally different. Mm. You know, you're you're you know, if you go through um, you know, in same with felling a tree, you know, felling a tree is just like slaughter day. It's the same feeling. It's a ter terrible day. It's a terrible day, but you have to do it sometimes, right? Just like slaughter day. So it's you know, in each situation, you get an opportunity. You get an opportunity to listen to your own instincts. You get an opportunity to feel into, okay, what does this tree want? What does this animal want? And ask that question and listen for the answer instead of looking to a book or an outside source. You, you, you know, you should follow your own instincts and realize that the answer will be different in every scenario and be willing to accommodate that. Sometimes it's like, oh, I'm going to harvest, you know, stinging nettles today and I'm going to this place. And then you get a feeling like, you know what? Don't go there. Don't, mm. don't do it. You're walking in and you're just like, no. And you got to listen to that and be like, damn, I wanted some nettles, but I'm not going to go. Versus, <clears throat> you know, this nettle wants a, a, some drops of blood versus, you know, this nettle wants some honey. I mean, you know, of course, you don't, you're not going to make offerings for every single plant, you know, in the, in the same way. I mean, it's not like... You know, we have to be utilitarian to some degree. It's not like, you know, every plant you cut, you make a prayer and an offering to. That would take a long time to get your food. Mm. That's not what I'm saying at all. But it's more like, how do we approach as a whole um, these scenarios where if I'm harvesting nettles, you know, if I'm singing a song and that's my offering for that day versus I bring some milk for the next time, you know, <clears throat> It's kind of interesting, but we have to we have to get rid of the idea that we can just offer the same thing all the time, or that roses always want this offering all the time. We just have to. It's just it's not that easy. So we one thing that really helped me 
um, understand that was looking at traditional offerings in uh, trolldom, which is Swedish folk magic, which is something that's really close to my heart for a lot of reasons and something I've studied um, for, I mean, a long time, but I mean, I guess more formally in the last six years, but before that, dabbling in it, and then, um, <clears throat> yeah, more formally in the last six, seven years. So it's uh, that, by looking at the ways in which people um, what they offered in what context to what types of spirits and how they did it. I've been slowly working on accumulating that lore so I can eventually write about it somewhere someday. It's super um, helpful because you see, yeah, there's some patterns to some of the offerings, but you see, you know, okay, this was offered to blah, 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 you know, in this way. And you get to see some of the nuance, some of the details, instead of just making just a, you know, a statement about just always do this without any explanation why. So I think it's interesting to look at offerings within a tra traditional cultural context, and then you can actually see offerings were very diverse for diverse reasons and diverse ways. It wasn't just you always do this and that's good enough. You know, you're in a, you're in a, and also it's like, you know, just like the experience of hunting or harvesting or asking uh, a tree spirit to help you with your, you know, whatever, um, that your, your health, um, your failing health. I mean, you know, that's like some sort of relationship. So you get to navigate that, you know, it, it, it yeah. What just came to mind real quick is the deer that I got last year in, in the national forest. Uh, after I shot it, it ran, it ran, I was in super steep mountain. It ran over the top. And so I wasn't quite sure that I heard it fall. So I had to reload my muzzle loader. And when I reloaded the muzzle loader, I cut the side of my hand open and I immediately thought, mm -hmm. this is blood for blood. Yeah. I immediately right thought there. that. Yep. That was good. That so was good it, to know. It really seems like, and this is where I struggle, but it, and I'm assuming when you teach people this stuff, they might struggle with this too. It, the one thing that seems so difficult, perhaps for many modern people, is to really trust your right. intuition and imagination. Like so often it's like, oh, I'm just having a weird thought. But it's like, you know. Yeah, it's a huge topic in all my classes. It's a constant topic. Trust yourself, trust yourself, trust yourself. Because if you don't, then, you know, you're going to lose so much precious information, whether it's whether it's stuff that comes in dreams or thoughts or visions or trance work, whatever. I mean, it's people doubt themselves a lot. And that's part of, you know going through the modern culture and, and desensitizing yourself, deculturalizing yourself to, to somewhat to modernity that is actually required in order to step into the, some of these old ways. You know, you can't, you have to start trying to think, how did people think 150 or 200 or 500 or whatever years ago to some degree to have an understanding of these things, which most people don't take the time to do. Mm. I well, mean, I you're... You know, you're doing it by muzz by using a muzzle loader and going hunting, and and you know you can do these things. Every, you know, some people can do it by learning how to dye with plants and knit things and weave cloth, or just you know what all of these different things that we can do these small and large, <clears throat> easy and difficult tasks and crafts that we can you know honor our ancestors by continuing this you know kind of way of life to some degree, whatever we are capable of. Like I said, um, in a large way or a small way, whether we're homesteading, living without electricity, or or whether we're, you know, growing um, vegetables in pots on our balcony, whatever we can do, there is an opportunity to kind of get a sense of how people thought about the enchanted world. Oh yeah, we we have a friend that's a a really good friend. He's a he used to be a sheriff, and you know he would not be. 
I don't think he would believe anything we're talking about today. But what is fascinating is he's really into doing maple. He's so incredibly blissed out and passionate and does maple syrup the old oh, way. Oh, cool. That's and, super cool. <laughs> yeah, he does maple syrup like it's the 1880s. And every time I leave his place, in my head, it's just like the ghosts are so happy. Totally. <laughs> and he has like 90-year-olds show up and say, this is how I did it when I was a kid. And they oh, just wow. offer him stuff. They give him stuff. They say, you can do this on my property, like just because. And so <laughs> it is so interesting, like how our passions, how our historical interests, how it does seem to also have an effect on the the material world seems to kind of doorways open. The Joseph Campbell idea, follow your bliss and the doors will open. It seems like e you could expand that out to the the, the old human ghosts, the, maybe these nature spirits. If you're in line with those things, they kind of will offer up, they will offer up things to you, I guess. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Or, or at least be benevolent and peaceful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, it, it absolutely does. I mean, when we, when we do things like celebrate Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter, which is coming up, whatever, um, Sunday, you know, our ancestors are attracted to that because it makes a lot of sense that they celebrated that in life and in death, those are the important festivals that they would return to. You know, mm. it's believed, for example, during the 12 days of Christmas, that's when ancestors come home, like as one, as one example of during the dark quarter. And so it makes sense also because of the traditional foods and a lot of times people would leave offerings of food for the dead. So yeah, when we're doing things in a traditional way, like when I'm hand sewing, you know, I can feel my great, great grandmother, I'm using her needles, mm. you know, things wow. like that. Just, it, it really does draw the dead near. But a lot of times those are the protective dead that we do want to be near and that help us. So I think it's a good thing. Can you further, for someone who like doesn't believe in ghosts or anything like that, can you further articulate how do you feel your grandmother there while you're selling? Like, how are you getting that information? Yeah, yeah so it's like, um, if I'm using her, I, I was lucky enough to inherit some of her lace making things and her, um, a lot of her old sewing stuff and actually a bunch of her tin types, just some old family heirlooms. And when I use her needles and her pin cushion and her thimble, it's like, I get I get memories uh, from when I was a kid. A lot of it comes through memories when I was a kid, mm. and I spent time at my grandma's farm. That's where she spent a lot of time. Um, my grandma was born there, but she was married into my great great grandma was married into the family and lived at that place for seventy five years. So it's like I feel I feel going back there. You know, I'm back there. I can. I can smell that place. And I, I associate that with her, with my great-great-grandma who I didn't meet, but I felt her presence there so much. So it's almost like transported back into time through memories and just seeing her, uh, like she'll pop in my head. And then I'll, then it's like weird, the weird coincidence is like, oh, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, it's her birthday today. What? How mm. weird. And I just, I didn't even know that. And I was sewing with her stuff or things like that, where you just, you just get a hunch like, oh, I need to, I, I should go look at this photo album or I should go um, reread these newspaper articles about, you know, my grandparents or whatever. Like we, we get those um, like inclinations for a reason. It's not just for nothing. So mm. it's, it's not like I'm sitting there talking with her um, as a ghost and she, you know, is appearing in front of my eyes, but I feel the, that connection. Okay. I totally agree. So yeah. I guess kind of what you're saying is that um, Jung Carl Jung coined the word synchronicity, which just means like a meaningful coincidence. So it's kind of like those meaningful coincidences are kind of letting us know that we, that these are not just wild fancies right. of our imagination, that there's something right. happening. Absolutely. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, I've got, I, I know the feeling I've got 
very many of those as well. And it, and you do get, it becomes so normal. It's at one point, you have so many synchronicities that you're just like, oh, well, I guess this is happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's interesting, but then there's fallow periods where you're not having them and you're mm. like, oh, I wish for those, you know? So it is, there is those fallow times too. Now I heard you say on one of your podcasts you did with somebody else, it was a little bit more of like a, an occulty spiritual podcast, but you said that sometimes our ancestors don't want to talk to us, that when you interact with your ancestors, it is helpful to, I guess, be conscious of who you're trying to talk to. Because I don't know, what are you trying to say there? That some of our ancestors might be malevolent or just mm. curmudgeons or what? Well, number one, it's not just that some of our ancestors don't want to work with us. It's that we don't we're want to work with all of our ancestors. So there's that, which means, do you like everybody in your family? No. No, no, of course not. Right. So we're not going to like all of our ancestors either. There's going to be some people who were abusive and, mm. you know, uh, terrible people who, for various reasons, that we do not want to call in when we're doing our Hallow's Eve ceremonies or our Christmas Eve offerings. So I think being conscious of that to, to whatever degree we can be, uh, you know, people just learning names and dates and having pictures and places and, and occupations and kind of some of the, sometimes that's the best we can do for a few generations back on all sides. But I also think that. Yeah, I mean, you know, depending on what we're working with our ancestors for, you know, if we have super, well, all of us probably have very, very religious ancestors, so they're not going to want to come to the pagan festival, <laughs> you know, where we're, you know, trying to do some sort of fertility magic. I mean, you know, we just have to think about it. The dead are uh, the same in death as they were in life for the most part. You know, that's what mm. a lot of people believe. And I've um, and, and I have read it in books of old and learned it from living people. So I, I believe that that's true too. So ancestors have a capacity to protect family and um, for health and um, prosperity and take care of children and do things like that and protect a household. But you're not going to be calling on your ancestors to do like magical witchy love charms or cursing somebody necessarily. They're not going to necessarily want to do that. We just have to be logical about it. Who were they? Uh, what would they want to help out with in this way? So, well, mostly going to be, yeah, love and protection and healing and kind of strengthening. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And what I'm thinking about is um, I've heard, especially recently with people talking about near-death experiences, about um, how important – I, for one, more and more with each passing day, certainly believe that there's something after we die. I don't know what it is, but I cert I'm starting more and more to believe in reincarnation. And um, it, it sounds like a lot of people who have near-death experiences will say there's definitely a purpose to what we're doing here. And – and that we only have so much time to fulfill that purpose. And even Carl Jung uh, had a very potent dream where when his mother was about to die, and he didn't know that, he had a dream his father appeared. And Jung was so excited to tell his father about everything he had been doing. But his father wasn't interested. His father wanted marital advice. And so he realized that oh, wow, my mom is about to go and return to dad. But dad is only at the stage that he got to in life. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it, even if we are eternal, like the Celtics, the Celts believe that the human soul is eternal. Even if that is the case, something about being incarnated right here, talking to you, learning, reading books, all experiencing life, uh, caring about people, et cetera, et cetera. Everything we can achieve here on this earth, like you're saying, 
it seems it does when we go somewhere else that we are we we can only bring what we were able to do here it's f- absolutely fascinating what if yeah no no i i, I agree i mean it's <laughs> the the whole thing of reincarnation or or what what not i mean it's interesting to i i can only get to a point where then it's just like it's a mystery it's supposed to be a mystery we're not supposed to know how exactly how it works of course i believe something goes on i don't know what or how at this point but the more that we can work with death in life i think the better prepared we are for it the more we can work with spirits of the dead and understand our own grief when it comes to death and loss, the better we're prepared for our own li- loss of life in a lot of ways. So, you know, without knowing what's on the other side, um, but being conscious of, you know, I have a I have a big gravitation towards the working with the dead and always have since I was a little kid and always interested in ghosts and, you know, graveyards and haunted places drawn to it. And um, I think that it's for a reason, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I think it's helpful for, yeah, facing our own mortality, for sure. Were there certain experiences from childhood that you would be open to sharing in particular? You know, with, with the dead? Well, um, yeah, what mm-hmm. did, were there, a, you know, not just a blanket interest, but were there mm-hmm. things that happened that kind of fueled it? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think a big part of it was um, growing up, going to my grandma's farm, which, you know, that was from the 1860s when it was built. And we would go there often every two weeks or every three weeks because my mom's mom lived there with her mom, my great aunt. And um, so it was like being, you know, being, being brought to this place where everything was old and we would go to the family cemetery, which was just down the road. And it was this really peaceful peaceful place full of spirit powers. And I remember um, it was almost so normal though, because I was just used to it. But I had a, I had different experiences there where I felt like there were people in the room with me. And one of my earliest memories there, I, I saw my gran- great grandpa, who I never met because he was dead, of course, when I was born. But I saw him in this, I think I was only three. And we were getting something from this little attic space that was this little, um, it was just like a square in the ceiling. And it was upstairs. And I remember there were these wooden weights and there were these clay marbles and it was a sunny day, like old clay marbles, like not glass. And it was a sunny day and I saw him and I didn't, I didn't, I thought it was real to some degree until later I realized, ah, I couldn't have seen him. He was dead. And then I I later found out he died in the house, you know? So I, I, I've had, I, that was a really early experience. And nothing felt scary about it at all. It just felt so good. You know, all of my experiences there were not scary. They were, they were really positive. So I think that part of it was, um, the interest came from realizing that going to a place that has that kind of history and the, you know, the upstairs was totally full of antiques. It was never changed. So the downstairs was turned into two kind of more modern-ish, but still old-ish apartments for my, my aunt, great aunt and my grandma. And then my great uncle for a while. Um, but the upstairs was just left untouched kind of. So when I, I would sit upstairs and look through all this old stuff for hours by myself and just spend time up there and look, I, I was like, you know, just, I wanted, I don't know. I always was interested in the old ways. So I think that spirits of the dead definitely inspired that. But part of it was, um, yeah, also growing up near forests where I'd spend a lot of time in the woods and just, 
all, I was, I was just always looking for a mystery and looking uh, for ghosts in haunted houses and in graveyards. You know, I got my, my friends in trouble, my, particularly my best friend, we would go to graveyards all the time. You know, this is when kids were just like, it's like, Oh, go do whatever. You're like 11. Nobody is watching us. It's just be out for the whole day. And yeah, we had different experiences with coming across you know, abandoned places and ruins that were just, it was so much more interesting than anything. I don't know. I guess that's why I was drawn to it, but I didn't have, I didn't have scary things happen um, in the same way that um, some people like stories I had heard, but of course there were haunted places I went to that felt really, really bad. So, I mean, I don't know if, if that's worth telling, but I have a couple, I have a particular story. Um, there's, there was a few stories I wanted to talk about because you had mentioned you, that you like hearing stories yes. about supernatural stuff. So I do have some stories. It's uh, in Let's terms of, yeah, in terms of the most like things that really stand out to me, um, because there's, like I said, there's all sorts of things where it's like, oh yeah, we're sensing this, we're picking up on this, or this weird thing kind of happened. But in terms of stuff that felt really like, almost like confirming, um, one of the things uh, was when I was... Um, I told this story once on a podcast, but it's worth repeating because it's so, uh, it was the first podcast I ever did, but I, I, it just, it really made me believe that there was hidden things that I couldn't see. So basically there's three stories I want to tell. One is that one. And then, uh, that's basically a supernatural encounter of sorts. And then the second one is about an omen that happened that was really significant. And then the third one's a spirit of the dead that was really significant. So the first one is, uh, I was playing in the woods behind my house, and this is in Michigan, and I was probably 10 or 11. I wasn't a teenager yet, and I was by myself, and it was summertime, and there was, you know, I, it, it was like a, it was a wooded neighborhood. So it wasn't like there, there was houses around, and there's a road, so, you know, a ways off, you could hear it. But I, there was a good chunk of woods um, there, and I was just, I was just like kids do. I was sitting there with a stick, like kind of just hitting an old stump with this stick, just for fun, you know, like just kind of mindlessly. It wasn't like in a violent way. I was just doing it just to see what happened because the wood was kind of rotting and falling apart. And a big chunk of the wood fell down, you know, off this old stump. And inside the stump was a horseshoe. And so I stopped what I was doing and I thought that that can't be right. That's that's not you know, impossible. And I look closer and sure enough, there's a horseshoe, a metal horseshoe that was inside this rotten stump. And I'll never forget that moment because I just got super creeped out and I felt like this isn't right. This isn't natural. How could this ever get inside of here? Like it doesn't make any sense. So I, I had this moment where I knew in that moment, you know, in that, in that second that it's like things aren't always what they seem. And that was a really powerful experience that is just like crystal clear in my memory. Wow. Yeah. I, I interviewed a guy um, on the, uh, on the Eastern shore and he said there was some lore in the swamps there where loggers cut down a tree and they found like rings inside the tree. Like what the oh, hell? Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Right. But I love that. I know it's it was so weird and I I I didn't touch it cuz I was so afraid. I but I but I totally got as close as I could to it so I could make 100% sure, you know, that that's actually a horseshoe cuz I thought no, that's probably just 
It can't be. It's like a shape, you know, like that looks like a horseshoe. No, no. I got close to it and looked, and then I got really scared when I realized, yeah, it's a horseshoe. It, I mean, you know, there's no, how did that get in there? <laughs> so it, and that was a place in the woods where you could, it was named after a tribe. Um, you could really feel the Native American presence in those woods. So, you know, it was, it scared me. That scared me. And it was really cool at the same time, but I, I'll never forget it. And, um, Another thing that happened to me was, uh, I guess this was almost four years ago. So this is a crazy story, but I had a, a really... Um, a significant omen that I think uh, that happened right before that I think saved my life. So I was I was here at my house and it was an August day, and you have to remember I grew up in Michigan, which is thunderstorms, you know, galore. So I grew up with like crazy thunderstorms, just scary, like you know, and you know, being scared as a kid, terrified. So coming out to the coming out to Washington when I was 21, there's hardly any thunder at all. It's like a joke, you know, when we get a thunderstorm out here, it's like it's like a little bit of thunder and some flash lightning. There's been a couple times where there's little ones, but I, I always think to myself, oh, that's nothing, you know? So I was just sitting here and it was a nice day and um, suddenly this thunderstorm like came on like out of nowhere, which was extremely rare for this area. And it was super loud and super crazy and, you know, dumping rain. There was lightning you could see during the day. And I thought, what the hell? And I don't, you know, I don't really look at the weather very much, sometimes depending on what I'm doing, but I hadn't heard anything about this. Apparently it was just like a storm that happened and it was right above my house. So I didn't really think much of it except for it was, it was maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. And I was, it kept getting, um, you know, the lightning and thunder were getting closer and closer together. Right. And I, and it was lo really loud and it, it reminded me of like when I was a kid and I was, I was excited. I was like, this is awesome. I haven't had a thunderstorm like this happen since I was, you know, like whatever, 15 or something. So I, I stepped out into the rain and it was just dumping and it, it was warm and uh, warm rain here is quite rare also. So I was just like delighted and I was like, wow. And I suddenly, I was in the rain and I was gonna walk out to this middle of the field kind of, just to feel the thunderstorm, you know? And I saw a large brown moth in the rain, like a big moth just fluttering, fluttering, getting wet. And I thought, what the hell? I've never seen a moth in the rain, not once in my life. And I have a, a special connection to moths that like goes way back since I was a kid and I different things and I knew that seeing like a dark colored moth is a bad omen um, and I just felt like something's not right this isn't this isn't good I, I shouldn't go out in the rain and I thought okay so I I stepped back onto the porch and um, I, I did a recording of the sound because it was getting so close the thunder and lightning were getting so close and I just recorded it for you know whatever 10 seconds I put my phone down, turned it off, and I was walking in the house, and the lightning and thunder happened at the same time. I somehow got struck by lightning. It felt like, um, I actually felt like someone had shot me in the chest. So for about, I don't know, 
10 full seconds, I thought a bomb either went off right in front of me or I got shot with a gun in the chest. And I got so, it was such a crazy feeling. I got the, my instinct was I, I went in the house, I turned off the light and I got down on the floor and huddled in a ball. And then I realized that I hadn't been shot. <laughs> and then about 10 minutes later, I got a burn on my hand where it came out. I mean, it sounds dumb to say it was shaped like a lightning strike, like just small. It was on my right hand and it, it, it burned like within, 15, I'd say 10 or 15 minutes, it, it started burning like a kitchen burn, like an oil burn. So I think it hit the porch or the ground and came up through the porch or something. It was so crazy. And that burn stayed for about 24 hours. I was messed up for a, a while, like three days. I felt really weird. And I also had a, a, I've had really weird dreams about lightning since then have been interesting. But I, yeah, in some ways I was like, that was cool, I guess. But it was, it was scary. <laughs> it was something. <laughs> but that moth and the rain, it saved me. You know, from I would have been out there. It happened. I mean, that happened like less than two minutes after that I saw the mall. This was like I think a, a piece of lore from Switzerland, where on Midsummer's Eve, and this was done in other parts too, where certain herbs were gathered. Um, well, I mean, it was done in Scandinavia too, and all over Northern Europe, where certain herbs were gathered on Midsummer's Eve because it was believed that the power and the plants were the strongest on that night. But some of the herbs, there's all sorts of uses for them. But some of the uses were to burn it during a thunder and lightning storm in the fireplace uh, to protect the house from lightning. the the red berried trees the holly tree the hawthorn tree the rowan tree those red berries are protective from lightning so that's like that sympathetic magic connection so fire right so they also protect the house from fire so and protect from lightning but the big um thing too is like oak um oak being actually sometimes oak being able to draw the flash so it strangely attracts lightning but also can protect from lightning It's interesting you bring up that you told this story because I was, while I've been reading, I've been rereading your book for the past few days since I read it a number of years ago. Um, and I was, the whole time I go over the lightning stuff, I'm like, what, does this even matter? I was like, does anyone really get struck <laughs> by lightning? I was like, do people's houses burn down from lightning? I was like, does this matter at all? And it's so funny. That I you know. <laughs> that is weird. No, I think, it, I think in some places it is actually a thing. After, after that happened to me, I looked it up and was like, oh, I guess there's like four different ways to get struck by lightning. And, you know, I was indirectly struck, which I was really lucky for. Like it struck the ground and went up through me and came out. But it was, like I said, it, it did feel like a gunshot, like an actual explosion in my chest. And, and right at the exact moment that the lightning and thunder struck. It was so crazy. God, that is insane. Yeah, that it is really incredible. was. 
Mm-hmm. Now, you said you had a third story, but maybe we'll talk a little bit more before we get into that one. Because sure. you, you brought up, so we've already been talking for like an hour, and we haven't even really talked much about plants. So right. I thought, because um, your book is so cool, Under the Witching Tree, goes through all of the different folklore and, and folk magic and practices with different trees. Since you brought up the oak, I thought the oak would be a great one to get into for multiple reasons, because you just brought it up. And because um, for people who are listening who are hunters and um, the oak is just so important. It creates the acorn that's eaten by the bears and the squirrels mm-hmm. and the deer and the turkeys. It's obviously a majestic looking tree and beautiful. Um, and then on my recent podcast, when I interviewed the Celtic uh, scholar, of course, the Celts worshipped in oak groves. And uh, often these groves would be the place of human sacrifice. The, the Romans wrote accounts of these oak groves being smeared in blood. Right. And uh, I, when I talked with the scholar, uh, obviously he, his interests are these old texts, mythology, history. So he might not necessarily know too much about the symbolism of oaks. But I asked, do you have any ideas why the Celts, why was it the oak tree that was so important? And he said on that topic, didn't, he didn't know there are some, some, some different ideas among scholars, why the oak. Um, he said, uh, the material reason is because the mistletoe, mistletoe grow, grew on the mm-hmm. top of the oaks, which was very important to the Celts and the Druids, uh, who were the religious figures in the Celtic world. Um, do you have any ideas why the Celts, why the Europeans thought so much of the oak and uh, anything like that? Um, yeah. So, Felipe, can I put a log on the wood stove really quick? And Absolutely. Just one second. Okay. And then I'll, I'll get to that question. Hold on. Thanks. So it's a great question. Oak is such a magical tree. It really is. I was just looking at um, these incredible Gary Oaks yesterday on a drive um, with my daughter, and they're so huge. So um, we always like to say, we like to repeat that little phrase, which is fairy folks are in old oaks, which I really like. (laughs) Uh, You know, in terms of worshiping the trees, the oak tree was such a life-giving tree from the acorns that for, you know, that basically gave sustenance to the animals and people, mm. um, mm-hmm. right? So it fattened the the boars in the forest and also gave mm. people food once they leached the tannins from it. And then the wood that it provided to make everlasting almost, you know, beams and, you know, materials for building buildings that were so strong. You know, oak is one of the most strong materials, but it, so it has this like strength and durability that can be understood as being life providing as well. But then this belief that the, you know, really old Oaks, there's, um, there's a place in Sweden that uh, my husband took me to where there was this huge Oak tree. I, I forget the names. I can never remember the Swedish names, but it was giant. And you really feel like, wow, this has been here probably for whatever, a thousand or more years. And, you really, um, there's such a power there. So like this this idea that it had been carried on for so long and people continued to worship these trees, it's like they, it's that same thing of 
that power can be felt by the next generation. So the oak tree worship being, um, like, why originally? Like, we'll never really know. Mm -hmm. It makes sense because it was a life-giving tree. And like you said, the mistletoe could definitely be something as well. Oaks down in Oregon grow the American mistletoe, which is really cool um, that we have a version of it over here as well. So it's... Mm. Uh, it's it's really interesting to think about that connection. The mistletoe was thought to be an embodiment of lightning. Mm. So uh, that's something else because of its white berries. It has so, I mean, it's one of the most mystical plants of all, all time because mm. of its strange parasitic nature and the fact that it makes these translucent, inedible white berries around the time of the winter solstice and that it's evergreen. It's an evergreen. So mm. it's, it's a really special plant. So it, it definitely could be from that. I think that you're... Your other guy was right about his hunch on that. Interesting, and it's and so it's it's interesting that you could listen to this whole interview today and think that a lot of these ideas are out there, but then you could also say, and yet you can really have reverence, even worship, and respect for these things in nature that provide so much for us. So even right. if you don't believe that there's a spirit in a tree, you definitely could say, well, hell, this tree has provided so much right. for humanity through the ages. Like you want to preserve these and conserve these and, and have respect for these incredible life forms. Absolutely. Right. And then in the belief that, you know, by making, you know, it may not resonate with us to to make a spirit happy in order for it to continue to be productive, but that was and is, you know, the beliefs of many people in the world today and other places where it makes sense that in order to, you know, when you're when you're rooted in animism and you believe it, that everything has a soul or a spirit, then mm. it makes sense that there's a way to have a relationship. It's not just one-sided, mm -hmm. you know, so... Mm -hmm. I think that that's like, it's not that far away from us. It's not that that strange. It's just under the surface. Mm. Now, I know you need to kind of wrap it up in a second here, but- We can I go gotta, on for a little bit. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, I got to hear about, so one of the coolest things when I read your book is about the holes in trees and how, how you kind of refer to these holes as like spirit portals. You know, for me, I probably usually just think of that. I want, you know, there's no doubt. When you see a real old gnarly tree and there's a hole in it, there is a vibe. But right. normally I would think like, huh, is there a bear in there? Is there a bobcat in there or a coon? Or if it's a small hole, it's like, you know, I squirrel hunt with my dog. So often the squirrels get away and they go into their little holes. Or you see a woodpecker go into one of those holes. But I never normally, I hadn't ever thought that, ah, there's all this. <laughs> well, the dog wants to squirrel hunt. Yeah, you said that. In the <laughs> yeah. I was just kind of, I wouldn't, while I certainly have had a, f you certainly get some of the cinematic uh, yeah. effect of a tree with a huge hole in it. Right. There's no doubt Visually. there's a vibe. Mm -hmm. It's like you could see it in an old painting or an old illustration by Arthur Rackham. But then to sure. think that there is this folklore, there are you know folks like you who kind of see them as like a, a portal that's right. a little different. That's something new that I w wouldn't have necessarily thought of. Right. Well, it represents a hidden space in the landscape that we can't see, right? It's like a cave. Like a we cave. can't yeah, we can't see what's inside or like a black pool, right? We can't see mm. the depths. We don't know what's in the bottom. So it's kind of that same thing where it's a hidden space in the land, so it could house potentially house spirits, dangerous spirits. Mm. Mm. So, I think that it it's just really um it adds a lot to our experience when we 
can see the landscape as also having beings that maybe we can't see with our eyes or can't see all the time. Mm. Now, maybe in, in our in closing, um, did you have a, a final story you wanted to tell? Yeah, I have a, a story with the spirit of the human dead that's pretty powerful uh, experience. Yeah, I, uh, this was actually only maybe three years ago. So um, this happened in Sweden uh, with my husband, Pieter. So he, um, he took us to a, um, he knows obviously um, that he, I'm interested in spooky places and so is he, so we have that in common. So he took us to a haunted hotel for an evening that was kind of known to be haunted, this inn. Uh, and it was, we didn't really know much about it going into it. He had just read like it's kind of like okay, there's a couple places that come up in the in the Google search, and he had heard about it. Then he knew about it, but he didn't know a lot of details. And so we kind of decided let's not do a bunch of research. Let's just go have the experience, right? So, you know, you're thinking okay, a haunted you know hotel like it's it's probably probably nothing's going to happen. That's what I was thinking. Of course, you expect something to happen, and it's not going to happen, right? But um so we went and it was it was the darkest it was i guess the december 22nd so the longest day or the longest night right so it's it's uh, a special day it was basically the solstice i guess it was yeah the 21st 22nd that's when we went we go there and it's it's an old mansion from the 1860s is what it is a big old white you know colored mansion and it's it's just starting to get dark which is in sweden at 3 30 um during that time of year so it's starting to get dark as we arrive we had to drive for a while to get there and we're, we're right when we get to the gate you know going into the woods and part of me is just like hmm this feels a little bit like a horror movie hmm i got freaked out right away and i was like what this is weird i didn't expect anything really but i i started to get chills you know kind of chilled and i thought oh whatever you know it's probably so we we go to this place um, it's this, it's, it's a beautiful old looking kind of beat and, uh, but beautiful old place. And I realize as we're walking in that we are the only guests for the night. So there is an older woman who lives there and she's lived there her entire life and she's our hostess and there's no one else there. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's intense but that's interesting. So here we are by ourselves. So she, the, the whole thing is, you know, it, it's, it's special because she cooks you the meal and it's just, and it's beautiful. You know, it is, it's old and beautiful, full of antiques, uh, you know, sparkling chandeliers and books and old wallpaper and, you know, just antiques everywhere. But the whole place was cold. So the whole time you're just like freezing, you know, because <laughs> it's probably expensive to heat or whatever. So we have this experience. We're there. Um, everything's a little off. I can't describe it. It's almost like just something about it. It, it felt like welcoming on some level because she was really nice, but also just strange. And and I I was I wasn't at ease the entire whatever however long we were there the day that we were there and the night and the next day and not until we left. Uh, so what happened was. We had the dinner and it was by candlelight. It was beautiful. Here it is, the darkest night. Here we are sitting, eating this kind of fancy homemade meal with this woman who's 
uh, who's nice but quiet, and we're just enjoying this very just kind of picturesque, right, <laughs> place. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, who knows if it's really haunted, you know, whatever. We don't, we don't really know. But we go upstairs to go to bed, and um, I couldn't fall asleep. So I'm laying there and laying there. And it, we had this beautiful room with a four-poster bed, and, you know, we had kind of the, the nicest, fanciest room with these beautiful windows looking out to the garden, but we hadn't, you know, it was dark at that point, but it was just really, it was, it looked really good, but I, I couldn't sleep, couldn't sleep. Um, I get up to go to the bathroom, I come back and I'm just sitting there and I suddenly, in the corner of the room, I felt the shadow, like just without a doubt, there was a presence. And I was just like freaked out. And in that moment, Pieter woke up from a dream that he had been having about a spirit in the room in that very second. He dreamt that there was a woman spirit and a child spirit and they were both shadows and we were all in the room together and the little child, he, he was in the dream, he was holding one of my necklaces and the little child spirit reached out and grabbed it and he woke up. So that was super intense. Both of us were f totally freaked out and we didn't sleep very well at all, needless to say. Because it was like I had the I had the feeling in the reality. He had the feeling. He had the experience in the dream, but but in the same moment. So that was really profound. And later, you know, the next day, I was relieved to have gotten through the night. We had a breakfast, a nice breakfast. We walked around the yard, which was beautiful, but also just pretty creepy. And we left, and I was really relieved to leave. And um, later, we went home and read about it, and it turned out that that was the most haunted room of the whole house and that her family the woman's family only slept in it like once or twice and never slept in it again they wouldn't sleep in that room Well, she should have told you at dinner. Well, she knew we wanted the haunted room, but she, okay, she didn't. Okay. We didn't know anything about it. We just she she knew we were interested in it, but yeah, it was pretty intense. <laughs> well, that's a great ghost story. And yeah. It, um, it, the again, it's like um, I forgot what we were saying earlier. Something along the lines, of, but that to get the confirmation, like that's amazing. Like yeah, they're both of my, from both of us too. You know, that was like he had the dream and I had the waking experience. It was really intense. That yeah, that is incredible. Yeah, and, it um, was pretty awesome. Yeah, certainly my ghost experiences have been my most intense have been with my sister. So that we're both having them oh, at wow. the same. We're both having a slightly different thing, but both intensely affected at the exact same time. Like that just really so confirming. Just really, mm -hmm. Yeah, confirming. Like there's absolutely without a doubt something happening here. Right. Cause if he wouldn't if Pietro wouldn't have woken up in that moment, I would have had the experience and I've told him in the morning and it would have been like, okay, whatever. But the fact that mm -hmm. he had this dream in that moment, it was just it was really intense. And then yeah, we just barely could sleep for the rest of the night. It was it was intense. Now are there some uh in your in your studies, are there some folk traditions on how to have say protected say if you didn't want 
to have that contact with a ghost. Would there, are there yeah. some kind of ghost protections? Oh yeah, in folk traditions, is there anything that comes to mind? Because I know you, there's so much information in your books. Yeah, um, definitely St. John's Wort is one, uh, and Rowan, but carrying both of those, um, and actually thyme, um, the herb, so having those would be really good protections against ghost and yarrow, mm, and, and okay. nettles, nettles, stinging nettles, those five plants come to mind, I mean, one or all, and angelica root, so angelica, archangelica, those, I guess, six are the ones that come to mind in, in terms of if you're just not wanting the activity and you don't want to be woken up kind of a thing or you want to sleep mm. through the night because you know you're going to a haunted place. Yeah. St. John's Wort, Rowan, Thyme, Yarrow, Nettle, Angelica Root. Those are those are the top top ones I would choose. I guess we, we didn't we didn't get to any of your other books. I mean you wrote a whole book on dreams and plants. You did Yeah, we a whole should book. we should we should talk about my books a little if you don't mind. Yes, if and you, you did a whole book mm -hmm. on like the the devil and plants, like devilish plants. That to me was like an absolutely bizarre idea. Like, <laughs> like why would plants be associated with even good or bad in, in Christian lore? But then I realized I have been reading this wonderful 12th century medieval bestiary. Ooh. And basically what that is, is an, an encyclopedia of what people in the in the 1100 thought about animals and it's a really wacky ideas, but mm -hmm. all of them, every one of those excerpts ends with a little bit of, there's always a moralizing tale that is framed in the Christian point of view. So then I was thinking, Oh, well, well that must be like what you've been studying. It's like, of course, in the height of uh, Christian Europe, even plants would have all been seen through the holy and the the damned mm. and stuff like that. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about that book? I, I haven't read that one yet. Yeah, so Plants of the Devil is, um, yeah, it's a really special book, and I'm actually working on a, a second edition that's going to be larger, so that'll be coming out uh, later this summer, no, next year. Um that's exciting because there's more to add, but it's a it's a really fascinating topic. It's but it goes beyond just um, it goes beyond just plants that were associated with the devil for various reasons. It goes it's like we're thinking about plants that have the potential for evil beings and evil spirits in general. So mm. even if we take even if we take away the name of the devil, if you look in all cultures, all places, you know, different there's going to be different plants or trees that were associated with evil powers. Some of that um, I. I I uh, did a talk about plants and um, evil powers recently at a at a book signing locally in Olympia, and I I have come up with like seven different reasons why I think different plants may or may not be associated with the devil slash evil spirits. The first one is um, plants that are associated with the dead. So any kind of funerary plant that's associated with the dead that tends to be demonized and um, ill-omened. So that's one that's pretty commonly found. Number two, plants that don't make edible fruit. So plants, you know, such as willow, which is a funerary plant and a, a tree that doesn't make fruit or alder that doesn't make edible fruits. Um, those tend to be associated with evil powers. So like the willow tree, for example, has been demonized since the time of Pliny before Christianity was even, you know, it was considered to be an, an ill-favored, unlucky tree, a cursed tree. So uh, then, then we can, along those same lines, trees or plants that um, 
yeah, are not considered productive or fertile anymore, like I was saying. So cherry trees were thought to inhabit uh, evil spirits after they were done being productive. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, it's like once it's not useful for humans, it's evil. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hmm, that yeah. is fascinating. And then there's Bizarre. plants that have uh, that are from in watery places. A lot of times the watery uh, trees and some plants, but they can be demonized because they're also in uh, terrain that's not able to be exploited. So it's like uh, these swampy watery places, you know, we can't develop them. So they often are just untouched and they're not really inhabitable, right? So humans can't even really live in these places. So it is like a refuge for spirits, not to mention, like I said earlier, water spirits were often considered the most dangerous types of spirits for humans. And then you, of course, have painful and baneful plants. So any plants that were poisonous and painful with spines and prickles and, you know, um, thorns were, you know, considered. Yeah, exactly. Right. Ivy. Right. Nettle, stinging nettle. Yeah. Poison ivy. Right. These things that um, were were like just painful for humans or poisonous were demonized. And then um, it's interesting to see plants that uh, also were like noxious weeds. Some of those are named after the devil because they were interfering with crop production. So that makes sense. It's another thing, you know, of exploiting the land. Whatever's getting in the way of that is evil because we're trying to feed the village. And, you know, and then Mm -hmm. there's also just plants that have those creation myths and origin stories that are um, kind of under the Christian umbrella. So, you know, uh, blackberry... Uh, was a plant that hid hid the hid Satan from the, from Jesus, you know. So it's considered evil because it helped Satan out, you know, things like that. So it's it's those are some of the reasons that I've come up with, uh, and also just plants that are straight up associated with evil spirits, like whether and you know, evil is a big loaded word. So what's considered evil to one person is going to be really different to another person. It's very subjective. But, you know, the yew tree, for example, always harboring spirits of the human dead. So that's feared and frowned upon and ill-omened, even though it was a tree that protected the dead in the churchyards and the old burial mounds, things like that. So um, it's, you know, you know the, the trees that were thought to have a spirit, like the black elder tree, the Sambucus nigra. So, there's a witch spirit associated mm-hmm. with that tree, so that's an ill-omened, ill-favored tree, you know. So it's it's really interesting. And, of course, the mandrake root, mandragora fissionarum, so that that was associated with the devil specifically or an evil spirit thought to inhabit the root from, you know, like way before, uh, because it was probably, probably because on one level, um, on some, on some, uh, lines of thinking. I mean, it, it could be because it was associated with love magic and ma- manipulation and, you know, love magic being um, pretty immoral and because <laughs> it's quite manipulative, mm-hmm. uh, some of it. So that's one reason, but also that evil spirits were just drawn to the root. So it was demonized because of that. It was thought to actually inhabit an evil spirit. So, you know, those are some reasons why. You can see You can see some of the logic, right? When life is so incredibly hard, when it's so hard to feed your family in a village, like if something, if something from nature, whether it's a wolf or a certain plant or a fungus that's, you know, poisoning your food or making it harder on your incredibly hard life, I can see the logic, some of the folk kind of logic in that. And then what came to mind with the plants of the dark that are on creeks and whatnot is because I opened this conversation talking about 
the creeks we have here with the rhododendron, supposedly the rhododendron might have like another name, like it's mm. suicide plant or something by the Native Americans, because I think if you burn rhododendron, it's mm. incredibly poisonous, something mm. like that. So fascinating. Again, it's on the creeks, it's on the streams and the rivers. Yeah, that's, that is interesting. Yeah. So they develop different, uh, you know, reputations based on their use. And that's another thing. Yep. And then you, so you got, and then you got a book on the dream plants. And then I think you got one on kind of like the witch's apothecary. Well, there's five books. There's the under the witching tree and then under the bramble arch, which is the 20 wayside plants that kind of is the companion to under the witching tree. There will be a third, um, garden plant book that'll be coming out next year. Um, finally. And then, but so there's those two, then there's the plants of the devil and then there's the dream divination plants. Um, so that's a small book, but it's really specialized lore about plants and dreams and how to use plants for dream divination. And then the witch's cabinet is, um, it's one of my favorites. It's 13 different essays on different aspects of plants and, and magic. So there's some really, um, there's some fascinating topics in there that I think are hard to find in one place. Like, for example, the folklore of plants, uh, connections with snakes and dragons, you know, um, plants used in mm. cursing magic. There's some funerary lore. There's all sorts of stuff in, in plants used against nightmares. So just some kind of specialized lore about plants. And then there's three um chapters about specific plants, a few favorites, the black elder, the roses and white lilies, or just lilies in general, but the Madonna lily. So those are just a few standalones that are in there that have a little bit more lore than the other books added to them. And then, yeah, there's the, the witch's apothecary and just some other interesting kind of things that I'd like to nerd out on. So that's, that was a really fun book. So it was actually, um, eight essays that were previously published in other places that were brought together, um, in one work. And then I added five new ones so we could make it into a book. So that's a, a special book to check out. And then mm, go ahead. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. I was just saying, I'm excited to read more of them because I've only read. Oh yeah. The no, there's a, uh, there's more to read. And it, it's great because my husband Pieter did the art for the tr plants in the dream divination book and also for the witch's cabinet. So his art is really incredible. And then, um, yeah, Marzina did the art for plants of the devil and that one there. It's really mind blowing also. So some of the art in the books are really special. I love it. I love yeah. all the illustrations, especially in under the witching tree. You know, one thing that's coming to mind kind of maybe as we wrap it up. So anyone that knows the slightest amount of herbalism, clearly there are plants that uh, just on the surface are very, very beneficial to our human health. And then with our conversation today, we've talked a bit more about the spiritual uh, plane for a lot of these plants. I wonder, you know, there's so much, I guess the modern person can see how these plants can help us, right? A lot of the herbal plants can help and heal us. It's like, so that's kind of from the human point of view. Do you think these plants want to get into our human body? Like the ones that are healing to us or, you know, do they, or even one that stings you like poison ivy, does it, I guess poison ivy is trying to tell you to leave it, give it some space, but like, does some of them want to get into us? Like, is, is it beneficial to them? Um, it's an interesting question for sure. I think that we can't uh, we can't really think about plants like hu uh, they're not human, right? So they don't have the same inclinations or desires or 
capacities. So in terms of thinking, like, do the plants, I mean, maybe one question is, do the plants want to be utilized in this particular way? So mm. um, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, when you spend time with the cedar trees or pine trees, you know, you feel like, and, and uh, that they're like these community trees that have provided so much uh, for the people of the place. So there is some trees that I think have a really strong sense of community that that really like, I don't know, they connect people in some ways. But I think that in terms of plants being like, use me for medicine, use me for medicine. Um, no, I don't really, I don't personally resonate with that. I, I don't think it's like, I, th I, you know, I don't necessarily think it's like plants think i think we're putting too much humanness onto plants and plants are different than mm. humans so i don't mm. think that there's the same kinds of yes, you know what i'm yes. saying does that make sense yes yes in the fall here we had an incredible crop of uh mm. chanterelles everywhere in the mountains and i was collecting some of the chanterelles you know they're bright yellow or orange and i just had the strangest feeling not we're not talking about plants we're talking about fungus but the fungi uh i just had this feeling that the, the mushrooms were like staring at me <laughs> and that they wanted to be ingested. And that night I had this super intense dream where I was back in the woods and those mushrooms were absolutely enchanted. And it was confirming, yes, That's these cool. guys want to get in your body. Mm. So I was just wondering if, what your thoughts were if plants Well, might I do think that, that, that well. brings up an important point. You had a specific transmission. Right. So you, you did, you had a full on <laughs> transmission from that mushroom. So I think that that's like a great example of, yes, those plants want to work with you. So I think that that can happen where people have plants that are like, Hey, I'm your friend, I'm your buddy. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's like another thing where there's like some sort of connection that happens. And that's a great example of one. <laughs> 